Today's conversation is about the leadership, faith, historical record, and implications, including surprises, of the national security policy of Ronald Reagan, 40th President of the United States. And the exchange you're about to hear between two seasoned national security officials with unusual expertise is rooted in a hot-off-the-press new book from HarperCollins, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. Dr. Will Inboden, the book's author and now a professor at UT Austin, where he runs the Clements Center for National Security, sits down with Elliot Abrams, who, during the Reagan administration, served in three assistant secretary positions at the State Department. Most notably, from 1981 to 85, Elliot was assistant secretary of state for human rights, and from 1985 to 88, he was assistant secretary for inter-American affairs. During those years, Elliot advocated strongly for policies to advance democracy and human rights in Latin America, South America, and throughout the world. How was the struggle against godless communism, as our 40th president put it, tied to supporting men and women striving to undo authoritarian regimes and dictatorships in their own lands? How could we successfully help advance freedom and human rights? What could work, and how would that play into the larger global bipolar struggle between Soviet communism and American liberal democracy? Will and Elliot also each served on the National Security Council during the George W. Bush administration. Elliot is Deputy National Security Director and Will is Associate. The big enduring questions notwithstanding, The Peacemaker is an easy read. It combines history and leadership analysis, and it's also far from endless praise for Reagan, who Will says was just a terrible manager. The book brings insights into cabinet meeting debates, both shared convictions, but also tensions between top officials, into the marriage between the president and Nancy Reagan, and a sense of when his Alzheimer's actually took effect. Into Reagan's optimistic faith, which rears itself just again and again, despite his decision not to go to church into the consistent instinct to prioritize people on the ground and their safety, even if it meant losing points with the American press. And finally, into Reagan's own personal grasp of Soviet economics, religious freedom dynamics, and military realities, sometimes insights that differed from public perception at the time, evident from the release of his presidential papers a dozen years after he left office. For his part, Elliot, who will interviewed for the book, is today a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a board member at TICVA, where he's the chair, the National Endowment for Democracy, the Vandenberg Coalition, the Israel Democracy Institute, and the Jewish People Policy Institute. Just prior to the holidays, if there's a Reagan fan in your circle, I heartily commend the book. Enjoy the conversation. Will, I imagine that as you started the research and the writing, you had some views of what Reagan's strengths and weaknesses were. And I'm wondering what happened in the writing of the book. I mean, did you find that the strengths were stronger or the weaknesses were even greater than you thought? Did you find that you had it kind of wrong, that you had missed some important positives or negatives? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, in that sense, what did you learn writing the book 
about Reagan. Yeah, thanks, Ellie. And I certainly did learn a number of things, even though I, you know, it was about a seven year process of the research and writing. And even though I'd never met Reagan personally in, in his lifetime, I you know, had a general sense of him and a generally favorable view of his foreign policy. But I'll, I'll tell you two surprises that emerged over the course of the, the research. The first was I went into it with a general sense of Reagan being a visionary strategist, but largely inattentive to the detail of foreign policy. And what I was surprised at over the course of the research is on certain priority issues for him, he had become very involved in the details. There was much more of an attention to detail in certain cases than I'd appreciated. So one big example, of course, is Soviet policy. And before any of his meetings with the Soviet leader, whether the foreign minister or Gromyko or, or Gorbachev, Reagan would often write his write out script out his own talking points. You know, this was not staff handling. Uh, you know, the staff would give him their suggested ones, but he would either completely rewrite those or write his own. And this was after he had spent weeks immersed in you know 100 200 page briefing books on you know the arcane details of uh, arms control and nuclear posture. You know, memorizing the names of key prisoners of conscience and dissidents that were that were priorities of him and the details of their of their cases. Another example is on Taiwan policy, when the first Secretary of State, Al Haig, was trying to put together a deal with China and Taiwan uh, arms sales that was going to give away way too much to Beijing, is this you know 12-page single-space memo going way into the weeds. Reagan you know, read the entire memo very carefully and gave very detailed line edits, uh, essentially correcting course with Haig and reinforcing American support for Taiwan. That was one surprise, uh, that on key priority issues, he was much more involved in the details, and this comes out in the archives. And then the other surprise was the real centrality of religious faith. I know this is a particular interest to your listeners here, but um, Reagan's own deep Christian, personal Christian faith really comes out in his diaries and in uh, you know the transcripts of his his meetings with Gorbachev and his discussions with his staff. I'd known that he had before, you know, but some sense of Christian commitment, but a very deep personal faith really comes out. And then how important that was for how he saw the Cold War as uh, certainly in part a religious conflict between atheistic Soviet communism and you know the West, which is defined at least in part by by theism, by by religious freedom, but also by a general general belief in God. And that was not just instrumental for him, but fundamental to his, his worldview. So those were two of the surprises. I mean, I do remember on the religious point, he didn't go to church. He was asked as president, you know, how why don't you go to church? And his answer, as I recall it, was you know, it upsets everything at the congregation. I mean, people go to church to worship. If the president's there and the Secret Service and the press, it isn't a church service. It's a theater, which was a good answer, but maybe not 100% of the answer, because my memory is that prior to that, as governor, for example, he also, and, and between being governor of California and president, he just wasn't a churchgoer. So it's very interesting to hear you say, what you did about the deep faith. Yeah, and I'll give a couple examples here. And, and you're right. And this, you know, he was, uh, you know, somewhat idiosyncratic with his faith and was, you know, an indifferent churchgoer. After he left office, he was a regular member at Bel Air Presbyterian um, in, in California, but that was after the presidency. But um, let me just give, read two very brief excerpts, both uh, from the book, both around the March of 1981 assassination attempt. The first is, this is an entry from his diary uh, as he was reflecting a few days later, reflecting as he was on the hospital bed. He said, I focused on that tiled ceiling in the operating room and I prayed, but I realized I couldn't ask for God's help while at the same time I felt hatred for the mixed up young man who had shot me. Isn't that the meaning of the lost sheep? 
We're all God's children and therefore equally beloved by him. I began to pray for his soul and that he would find his way back to the fold. So Reagan is praying to forgive John Hinckley, the man who had just tried to, to assassinate him, and ties it very much to his own sense of forgiveness as, as a Christian. And then uh, one other diary entry from a couple of weeks after the assassination. Perhaps having come so close to death made me feel I should do whatever I could in the years God had given me to reduce the threat of nuclear war. Perhaps there was a reason I had been spared. And so he had that sense of divine calling for you know, bringing the Cold War to a peaceful and victorious end. Of course, this is why he built such a close relationship and partnership with Pope John Paul II, that same sense of providential calling to, to end Soviet communism, to end the threat of nuclear war. And of course, the Pope was also in a, uh, survived an assassination attempt just two months after Reagan. So that shared sense of a providential destiny. Reagan was raised as a Christian scientist. My Memory meant right. Disciples of Christ. Yeah. So his father was a rather indifferent Catholic and uh, indifferent Irish Catholic, and his mother was very disciples of Christ. Yeah. And he ended up a Presbyterian. Yeah. Yeah. So we won't comment on that. You know, he had elements of, uh, not to get too theological, but premillennial dispensationalism. You know, he's very fascinated with the end times. You know, we. President Biden was in the news recently musing about the possibility of Armageddon with nuclear war. Reagan would regularly talk about, he'd been reading Revelation and was worried that you know we might have an Armageddon on our hands with the threat of nuclear war. So he's uh, rather eclectic when it comes to his theological commitments, but the real through line is a very deep sense of, I think, a, what we would call a born-again evangelical Christian faith, even if there's indifference to church going. Yeah. This may be the answer to a question I also wanted to ask you. I worked for George W. Bush in the White House and got to see more of him after 9-11 and other challenges he faced, particularly after 9-11. The country was watching him. You know, We on the staff were watching him. What was going to become of us as a country? Would there be more of these? How do we react to this? What do we do? And any sign of kind of dejection, despondency on his part we would have seen immediately, the country would have seen immediately. I was and am very admiring the way he carried us on his staff and as his fellow citizens on his shoulders in a tough period. Okay, 9-11. But that's true of every president in every term. The whole world is watching you. The country is, your staff is. In Reagan's case, we're at the height of the Cold War. In Reagan's case, he had been shot. And the question arises then, how do you do this? How does a man carry that weight on his shoulders? And I guess part of your answer is going to be faith in God. But is that part of it? And is it the whole answer anyway? Yeah, this is where, you know, having, again, worked with, uh, worked for President you know, George W. Bush myself, and that's where, of course, Elliot and I were, you know, privileged to work together and become good friends. I do think there are some similarities between Reagan and Bush, both in terms of, you know, the deep personal Christian faith and that providing the resolve and the strength that they needed to endure, just, you know, unfathom the unfathomable pressures of the presidency. And that's one of the you know, certainly bringing it back to Reagan, one of the unique things about him is, you know, waking up every morning facing the the threat of nuclear war, the possibility that this could be, you know, the last day, his last day, the whole, the entire world's last day in existence, not knowing how the story is really going to end, uh, feuding staff, uh, partisan pressures, lots of criticism from you know, his fellow Republicans and from Democrats and from the media. And one reason why I think he was able to 
maintain that resolve and that strategic vision was that sense of a, of a divine calling and, and certainly the peace that comes from feeling like he is uh, serving, serving God's, God's purposes. And also partly with Reagan is it just comes from, he really, you know, taking office at the time as the oldest president, having, you know, lived a pretty full life already. He was pretty confident in himself. He was, he was sure of himself. He believed in his, in his vision. And uh, that also gave him, I think, the ballast to see it through when, uh, you know, we know now that the story ends, ends happily with the peaceful end of the Cold War. But that was certainly not what, you know, very few people envisioned that in 1983 or 84 or 85. And you were working there, Elliot. You, you remember it. Those were difficult days. I do remember. I, I want to add something else for that's an analogy or a link between Reagan and George W. Bush that I think helped see them through. And it is that both men had great marriages. And, you know, to see them, to see husband and wife together, you didn't have to spend a lot of time to realize that what kind of a relationship this was and how important it was emotionally to sustaining the president. You know, you're exactly right. And to reflect a little bit more on Reagan's marriage there. And again, I know Karen Tumulty has written that wonderful biography of the first lady, Nancy Reagan, but Reagan had no, had virtually no close friends. Uh, partly comes from being the child of an alcoholic. And even though he had a warm personality, was also known for being rather cold and distant when it came to any you know, personal exchange or personal intimacy. But the one exception was the first lady, Nancy Reagan. And this is something that, you know, I've read every word of every page of his, his diaries. I commend those to people. But anytime the first lady was out of the White House, if she was away traveling, visiting family, doing, you know, first first lady business, Reagan always talks in his diaries about how much he misses her. And this is not political, right? He wasn't writing these to release them to the Washington Post and New York Times. I mean, this is just his personal thoughts. And he was just deeply lonely, deeply missed her. He just was not himself if she was not around. And that's why she also, again, as Elliot mentioned, in addition to his faith, was you know a key anchor for him and surviving a lot of the buffets of a very, very challenging presidency. As I read your book, I was really, you know, as I got to the end part, that is, the last year of the administration. Well, I didn't see Reagan every day, but when I saw him, he seemed unchanged to me. And there is a very widespread view in, in the media that, you know, his dementia started early, even after he got shot. And by the end of the administration, you know, it was being run by various prime ministers, Jim Baker and so forth. And Reagan was fading away. When I read your book, that was one of the most interesting things to me, that it's not that you commented on this every 10 pages, but rather the guy who appears in 1981 and, you know, 1985, same guy in 1988. And I was struck by that, that there's no, as you look at his activities, his speeches and so forth, I didn't see any evidence for any mental decline. Yeah, this was another one of the questions or puzzles I had at the outset of the research as far as was I going to find evidence in this last two or three years in office, again, of uh, you know the early stage dementia. While I don't explicitly go into it in the book, you're exactly right. I, I didn't see it. A great example is if you read the um, the transcripts of his final, his last two summit meetings with Gorbachev, uh, Moscow in May of 1988, and then New York in December of 1988 during the transition. And again, you know, for pages and pages of vigorous dialogue and going into details on the issues and talking about you know, religious faith and prisoners of conscience and the INF treaty. This is a you know very sharp man in command of his faculties, in command of, of the issues. 
you know, other moments in his last two or three years in office when he maybe would have lapses, you know, at a press conference or a meeting or something like that. I think that can be explained pretty straightforward. It's an exhausting job. He was seven or eight years into the world's hard, hardest job. And at the time, again, was the oldest president in, in office. So, you know, I'm much younger than Reagan was. And I find if I get exhausted, I'll have my lapses too, right? So I think it's just, it was much more straight, as straightforward as that. I want to go back to religion for just a minute, because one of the things that was interesting to me in his anti-Soviet views was, of course, the question of religious freedom. And I, these were the days, I think younger people won't remember this, but there were lots of problems of the denial of religious freedom in the Soviet Union for Christians and others, for Muslims, for Jews. There was a Soviet Jewry movement and Reagan. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit, but this is the days when the greatest, the most famous of the so-called refuseniks, Anatoly Sharansky, was in Soviet prison and the Pentecostals were in the basement of the U.S. embassy. So, I mean, Reagan, I guess, would have had to pay attention to it anyway. But this was, in a way, the cutting edge of our objections to the nature of Soviet uh, rule. Yeah. Again, uh, and it's central to understanding Reagan's Cold War strategy, although I, like I said, I mentioned earlier, I tie it also to his own personal Christian faith and his sense of kinship with other religious believers, whether Christians or Jews or Muslims. And I'll tell a vignette that I first got from George Schultz when I interviewed George Schultz for the book before he died, which was because uh, one of the questions I had was I knew that Reagan was very committed to both the state of Israel and aiding Soviet Jewry, but I wondered why, where, where did that come from? And Schultz said, he said, oh, this is, it's easy. He said, Reagan would often tell us a story that in the, in, during World War II, Reagan was 4F, uh, you know, was not able to serve in combat because of poor eyesight. So instead he made uh, training films uh, stateside for the, for the Army, Army Air Corps. And early 1945, Reagan at the film studio was sent raw film footage of some of the first concentration camps liberated by American forces. You know, they, they took, uh, you know, filming of it and they sent it back for him as part of the, uh, the studio he was working at. And Reagan was so horrified by these early images of the Holocaust that he, he actually made a copy of those films and saved them and would later even show them to people in the white house 40 years later. And for him, that was the seeds of early opposition to anti-Semitism, both as you know an appalling human rights violation, but also for him as a leading indicator of totalitarianism. Like this is the secret for him to understanding totalitarianism is how does a society treat its religious minorities, especially its Jews? And that's why Reagan would often draw continuities between Nazism and Soviet communism. So then once he becomes president, he's very focused on the plight of Soviet Jews, again, partly as a human rights, you know, normative human rights commitment, but also for him, that was the key to understanding the wickedness of Soviet communism is its mistreatment of its uh, religious minorities. And so this is why, you know, he has George Schultz host a Passover Seder at the U.S. Embassy Spasa House in Moscow, you know, bringing 130 Soviet Jews there. This is why Reagan is so focused on the plight of the Refuseniks, especially uh, Anatoly Sharansky, as you mentioned. Um, and then, of course, Soviet Soviet Christians as well. So it's uh, it's it was a very deep-seated commitment he had going four decades earlier back to World War II. It's something that we tried in the Reagan administration, always with difficulty to convey to the Russians, because their view was, you know, all this stuff is propaganda. You're looking for ways to uh, make trouble. I mean, Schultz, for example, found 
there had been a pattern of U.S. diplomacy where, you know, you start when you're meeting with the Russians, you start with the deadly serious things like nukes, weaponry, and then you get to the economy and trade. And then, oh, oops, the hour is up. Well, wait a second. I just want to mention human rights. Well, that message was very clear to the Russians, what's important and what isn't. So Schultz made it a practice of starting meetings with the Russians, talking about human rights. So they knew it wasn't a throwaway. And I think as they got to know him better, and by the way, Schultz was not a churchgoer either. It's interesting, but this meant a lot to him. And he would try, we would work very hard to convey, as the president did, to Gromyko, who was kind of hopeless, but to Shevardnadze and Gorbachev, this is not propaganda. This is something meaningful to me as president, to me as secretary of state, and to Americans. And nobody can understand or tolerate this kind of behavior. It was a tough thing to convey, but I think over time, as they got to know Reagan and Schultz better, it got through. And as you say, that amazing moment of, of giving a Passover Seder at the at Spasso House, the official residence of the U.S. ambassador to, to the Soviet Union, was an amazing event for all of those Jews, too. Yeah. And let me give a, just a couple more anecdotes that I think really illustrate Reagan and Schultz's personal commitment on these issues beyond, you know, any political benefit they might have gotten. First, they would often, you know, have a really commitment with the Soviet leaders that if you release these Christian or Jewish prisoners of conscience, we will keep quiet about it. We won't crow about it. We won't get, get political benefit. We won't call a press conference and point out that we got you Soviets to do this. We just want these people released because it's the right thing to do. And they would enlist other leaders. I mean, Elliot, you were you were part of this, as was uh, Max Campbellman of Reagan would often dispatch, you know, senior State Department diplomats to visit with all of our Western European allies, giving them letters saying, hey, please join us in doing more to advocate for human rights and religious freedom in the Soviet Union. Max told me a great story of um, he at, at Reagan's behest encouraged other Western European leaders to station their diplomats outside the Moscow synagogue on Friday nights for Shabbat services because the KGB was there trying to harass Jews going in. And so you had this you know, wonderful Friday night collection of Western diplomats standing there out, outside the synagogue uh, to help provide you know, safe harbor and diplomatic support for the, the Jews you know, who wanted to worship. One final one, I mentioned uh, Reagan's December 1988 meeting with Gorbachev. And so this is after Reagan is now you know, the lame duck president. George H.W. Bush has been elected uh, the new president. It's the transition period. And Bush and Reagan and Schultz all meet with Gorbachev at Governor's Island in New York. And you read the transcript of the meeting. It's primarily celebratory. You know, we, we had a great run, Mikhail. We've you know partnered to reduce nuclear weapons. U.S.-Soviet relations are doing much better now. You're going to enjoy, you know, Vice President, new you know President-elect Bush. And then towards the end of the meeting, Reagan says, oh, by the way, here's a list of 15 other Soviet Jewish refuseniks that we'd love it if you would let them emigrate to Israel. So, no political benefit whatsoever. He's, he's a lame duck president, but he is so personally committed on these issues that even his final meeting with Gorbachev, oh, here's 15 more names. You know, it's interesting to me listening to you. You mentioned when you interviewed George Schultz and when you interviewed Max Kampelman. And I'm just sitting here thinking there aren't going to be more books like yours because people have been passing away. Now, admittedly, it's been a while since Reagan was president, but you know, and George Schultz died at the age of 100. But this opportunity that you took, uh, as you said, it, you took you 
years to write it, but to interview these people who, you know, were bearing witness couldn't be done. If you started that writing research today, you couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, just I was talking with my wife the other night and reflecting just in the last, you know, seven years of the people I interviewed for the book who have now passed away. So Bud McFarlane, Colin Powell, Frank Carlucci, George Schultz, Max Campbellman, Charlie Hill, you know, again, names all known, known well to you. There may be a couple of others I'm, I'm forgetting. And of course, you know, that's the fate that awaits all of us. But I, when I started off in the research, I had a sense of there is this unique window of we're far enough removed from the Reagan administration. A lot more of the archives have been opened and documents declassified. And so I can be one of the first scholars to look at those. But we are close enough in proximity to the Reagan administration that most of the key people are still alive for at least a few more years. And so I, you know, was able to interview as, as many as I could. I wanted to ask you about something you mentioned, which is the diaries. Let me go back to this question of what did you learn when you were writing the book? You know, you've mentioned some things, memos and, for example, um, Reagan's preparatory notes for meetings with the Russians. The diaries were not available for years after he left the presidency. And my general impression is that the press was impressed by them. That is, that there was a general reaction, huh, wait a minute, he actually knew a lot. He actually thought about these things. What if you look at kind of the documentary record and then the diaries, what comes out to you? Yeah, a few things to mention there. And again, like I said, I certainly commend the, the diaries to anyone. One is it's a great window. This will sound mundane, but I hope your listeners will appreciate There's it's a unique uh, opportunity. It's a great window into the daily life of a president. Okay. By which I mean almost the interior life. And it's not like Reagan is deeply reflect, reflective, unburdening his soul to the diaries, but rather any given diary entry, and he wrote faithfully almost every night, right? So this is every day of the presidency will be something, it'll be some combination of, well, I met the 4F princess from Nebraska today. She's a really sweet girl and, you know, hopes to grow up to be a CEO. And I just love America. And the very next line will be something like, very difficult meeting with uh, Cap and George, you know, Secretary of Defense Weinberger and Schultz over Soviet arms control. And the very next one uh, line in the, in the same entry will be, I really think we're seeing some vulnerabilities in the Soviet political economy. And even though CIA assessments are more optimistic about it, I really think my strategy is starting to work. And so what I mean about the you know, the daily life of the presidency, it's all of those duties. And Reagan is you know, dealing with them all at the same time. And so we look back and we may remember some of the bigger, you know, strategic concepts he had about the Cold War. But this is all against the, the backdrop of just, you know, daily politicking and staff feuding, even though he was a you know terrible manager and anyone who worked for him will say that. And he was, you know, very averse to conflict. It comes out in the diaries that it would be very burdensome to him when his you know staff was bickering with each other and leaking to the press all the time. It's, as you live through, Elliot, obviously a very acrimonious administration. And yet somehow the, the guy at the top was able to set a strategic vision and eventually get some good outcomes. Let me tell you a story about that. You mentioned Cap and George, Cap Weinberger, George Schultz. They did not get along. And it manifested itself in a lot of ways. But one of them was Panama policy. You know, you had this dictator, Noriega, and he was involved in drug trafficking. And, you know, we wanted to get him out. But the Defense Department thought, OK, you know, human rights and he's a dictator. Not important. What's important is we have the canals. Him. What's important is we have 10,000 troops down there. And, you know, you have that number of troops and families. Americans get in trouble. Americans need some help from the local government. Pipe down. Just leave it alone. Whereas Schultz's view was this guy's a drug trafficker. He's a bum. We need to get rid of him. We need to push him out. 
we must have, you know, I was going to say we must have had dozens. Well, we had a lot of National Security Council meetings discussing this where Weinberger and Schultz would go at each other and the president would never decide. The president would kind of listen, but he wouldn't decide. Schultz wanted us to do something about Noriega and get rid of him. Weinberger didn't. And the president would never decide. And I remember once after what seemed to me like so many meetings on this and probably was a few, I was very frustrated. And I said to someone you've mentioned, Charlie Hill, who was executive secretary of the State Department, the kind of number one Mandarin aide to uh, Secretary Schultz. I said to him, what's the matter with the president? Why won't he decide this? And he's taking the salary of being president. Should make a decision. And Charlie said to me, you're so naive. You don't understand what the president is doing and how he's trying to manage this conflict. And I said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he said, well, Cap doesn't want to do anything. George, the secretary, wants to get us into action. The president obviously is siding with Weinberger because we're not doing anything. But he knows that these two guys are at daggers drawn. So he does not want to exacerbate it by saying, no, George, you lose. Cap wins. Instead, he's willing to manage it by what appears to be not making a decision, but he's making a decision. He's making a decision in a way that keeps the level of hostilities among those guys down. It's a way of trying to manage that conflict, and it's working. And I thought it was a clever insight by Charlie Hill, but also an interesting insight into the president's desire to get around uh, or through these conflicts. And again, it goes back to uh, you know the, the key point you made there is that Reagan very much valued the work that Weinberger was doing at the Pentagon, presiding over the military modernization, and he very much valued the work that Schultz was doing at, at, at the State Department. And he was good; he was friends with both of them, and he wanted them to both be happy. And so, so sometimes that meant you know allowing those those feuds to simmer by you know quietly making the default decision to side with Weinberger, but not saying it in a way that would be an affront to Schultz. You use the phrase terrible manager, which is, you know, pretty straightforward. Was he a terrible manager when he was governor? Yeah, I didn't study the governorship as much because, you know, the, my book is really just focused on his presidency and on foreign policy. But yeah, during the background reading and research, I did a little bit on his time as governor. And the short answer is, yes, uh, he had some of these same issues as governor of, uh, you know, big bickering staff and, and Reagan allowing, you know, some of these in leaking and uh, Reagan allowing some of these differences to fester. But two comments on that. One is, well, being governor of California is a big deal. It's not as big a deal. The stakes are not as high as being president of the United States. And so the real severity of the feuding and, and his uh, lack of attention management didn't come out. And then second is, you know, someone that you knew well, uh, Bill Clark was his chief of staff while he was uh, for many years while he was governor. And Clark was very devoted to Reagan and was a very good manager. That's why I paint a very positive portrait of Clark as during his time as national security advisor. And so he was able to, I think, better manage a lot of the, the feuding and differences on the gubernatorial staff, uh, whereas, you know, Reagan's chief of staff, Jim Baker, obviously very, very capable, but he was usually taking sides in some of these different internecine uh, fights. And he was a huge leaker. Yes, yes. So, yes, that that certainly comes out. Yes. Well, to me, it's it's fascinating to read a book about his foreign policy. And it leads to another question I wanted to ask, which is Margaret Thatcher once said, Ronald Reagan won the Cold War without firing a shot. But the revisionist history of it is the Cold War was ended by Gorbachev. Reagan was a kind of bit player. 
What do you think? Yeah, I take that on head on in the book. And the short answer is I think that's wrong. I really, I think Reagan and Gorbachev both played key indispensable roles, right? So I, you know, I have a, a lot of time for Gorbachev. I think he was a really, like I said, an indispensable leader for the Soviet Union. But the reason why when we're doing the net assessment or weighing it all on, why I still think Reagan gets more credit for the peaceful end of the Cold War is this. It becomes very clear in the archives, and I haven't seen other scholars make this argument yet, but I think the evidence is pretty strong that from when he, the first day he took office in 1981, when Reagan is putting together his Cold War strategy, his anti-Soviet strategy, one key prong of that is to pressure the Soviet Union, the Soviet system to produce a reformist leader that he can negotiate with. And he and Dick Pipes, the senior director for Soviet affairs on the NSC staff at the time, the famous you know, Harvard scholar, are very explicit about this, that we want, as part of our economic and military and ideological pressure on the Soviet system, we don't just want to weaken it. We don't just want it you know, to crack and fall apart. We want this to produce, put so much pressure on the Politburo that they have no choice but to eventually bring up a reformist leader, and then we can look for a negotiated uh, settlement and, and avoid nuclear war. And, and so that's why I titled the chapter in my book, When Gorbachev, Four Years Later, Comes to Power, I title it Waiting for Gorbachev, because Reagan had been waiting and looking for for a, Soviet, a reformist Soviet leader all along for four years. Look, Gorbachev is also selected because plenty of other geopolitical factors and internal factors within the Soviet system. I'm not saying that Reagan was the only one who made Gorbachev come to power, but he did help create those conditions. And then in turn, this is why Reagan recognized Gorbachev early on as a reformist leader, that someone he could he could do business with, even with uh, when other experts such as Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger and Brent Scowcroft and others are saying, or Weinberger for that matter, you can't trust this Gorbachev guy. He's just a better looking uh, old, old line Soviet troglodyte. And Reagan said, no, this is the reformer I've been waiting for. You have the line in the book, Reagan at one point was asked why he hadn't met with any Soviet leaders pre-Gorbachev. And his reply was, they keep dying on me. Would have been exactly right, one after another. Three of them die, Bre you know, Brezhnev and Dropov Chernyenko, three of them die in three years in succession, you know, and it's uh, it's perverse. But also that was a symbol of the decay of the entire Soviet system. The fact that they couldn't even find a leader, you know, under you know, under 70 years old with any any health or, or, or vigor. Yeah, so they kept dying. So, Elliot, I want to, uh, you've been very good about asking a number of questions here, but I want to turn this back to you. And I it's another theme in my book, but it's one that my interview with you helped bring out and an important part of Reagan's legacy that I think is also underappreciated. And we've talked a lot about his support for religious freedom and human rights dissidents in the Soviet system. But equally important, I think, is the pressure and diplomacy that the Reagan administration did on a lot of America's right-wing authoritarian allies to democratize. And we see this with the wave of democratizations in Latin America and, and Asia, you know, Philippines, South Korea, Taiwan, Chile, Argentina, Brazil. And I think it's a really interesting and underappreciated part of the Reagan legacy of looking for both strategic and moral consistency of saying America supports human rights and democracy full stop, even if it means putting pressure on uh, these military dictatorships who are, are otherwise anti-communist uh, allies. And of course, this is you're one of the first ones to make this argument within the administration, then you do a lot to implement it. So tell us a little bit more about that part of the, the Reagan legacy, because I, I think it's tremendously important, especially as we think about American foreign policy today. Well, I'm happy to do that. I think the president doesn't get the credit that he deserves for that. You explain it all in the book, but generally speaking, people don't think of Ronald Reagan 
as having done so much for human rights. But in those cases you mentioned, the Asian ones, Latin American ones, when he came into office, these are all dictatorships. I mean, there's barely a country in Latin America in 1981 that isn't a military dictatorship. And he wanted to make it clear that we were on the side of democracy. Under Jimmy Carter, that argument had emerged, you know, that we toppled the Shah or we watched him to get, get toppled. Same thing in Nicaragua, the dictator of Somoza, and it got worse. It got worse. So just leave it alone. That was not what the Reagan administration did. Our view was after a dictatorship, you shouldn't get a worse dictatorship. You should get a democracy. And in these cases, the president worked hard and sometimes personally with the foreign leaders to push them in the direction of democracy, not overnight. He and all of us had learned the lessons of Iran and uh, Nicaragua, that it can get worse. So you need to answer the question, well, what's next? What's the next government? And what can we do to try to stabilize a democracy as the inheritor? Are there any leaders whom we can work with or endorse? And we did it in various ways, sometimes with the president himself, sometimes in the case of the Philippines, the dictator Ferdinand Marcos got the word from Reagan's great friend, Senator Paul Laxalt, who actually went out there and said, you know, and, and who spoke to him on the phones and said, it's time, it's time. And we then provided a haven, which is another important thing. That is that the president was not saying, you're not useful to the United States anymore. You used to be a useful friend, drop dead. The president was saying, you've done much for your country. Now it's time for change. He did this in Korea with the general who was leading the, the military junta there. He didn't say to people, now it's time for you to go to jail. You know, he said, now it's time to move on to a new stage and we will help. That's how Marcos came to live in, in Hawaii because we wanted to give him a safe place to land, which is a lot harder to do nowadays. And all of this is important in part because who's Ronald Reagan? Ronald Reagan's a great right winger, right? Ronald Reagan is, I mean, it's hard to put it this way for people who don't remember the 80s, but he was Ronald Reagan. So he was, you know, the, he meant, he stood for anti-communism. Now, all these guys, all these dictators said, I'm the bulwark against communism. So when Ronald Reagan said, you know, not now. Now I'm afraid that the opposition to you from your own population is actually going to feed the communists. It's going to give the communists weapons that we don't want them to have. So it's time to think about a measured, careful, safe transition to democracy. And that took away from them this, this tremendously important ideological point they made, which is it's mere the communists. What Reagan was really saying was... Um, well, wait a minute. What about democracy? Can I ask a quick follow-up to that? <clears throat> you know, The Economist has a piece out this week about the decline in democratic trending in the world. And Pew says that today there are, out of 167 roughly countries in the world, maybe this is a couple years dated, 96 are democracies of some kind. But my question is, how are we doing? What would Reagan say? You end the book, Will, which, by the way, friends, is a fast-paced book. 
You got lines like, meanwhile, Kirkpatrick back at the UN says it's quick, it's crisp. It is 571 pages, total everything, but uh, it, it moves quickly. Easy read. Easy read. But you end the book after his Alzheimer's revelation to the public, saying from his speech in 92 at Oxford, you know, with the Soviet empire defeated, will we fall into petty, self-absorbed economic rivalries? Will we squander the moral capital of half a century? Will we turn inward? lulled by dangerous complacency and short-term views. Essentially, the work of freedom is never done. The task of a peacemaker is never complete. You know, Elliot's on the board of the National Endowment for Democracies. How are we doing? Well, the, the National Endowment for Democracies is doing fine, but, but the cause is not. You know, I'd have to say, I think we've had three presidents, Obama, Trump, Biden, who haven't really put the energy into this that the Reagan administration did. You can find speeches by all three of them in which they say all the right things. And this is obviously bipartisan, both parties. But the move is in the other direction, more authoritarianism in a lot of um, countries. Part of it is economics, I think, and their false claim that, you know, that, that they can um, bring more economic prosperity. But one of the things that happened was you, know, you had all these regimes, then you had democracies. And the democracies didn't produce as well as they should have on the economy. And so people were autocrats or would-be autocrats were able to say, I'll do better. Democracy, fine, you know, but I'll do better for you and your family. I believe, though, that, that it swung as far as it is going to in that direction. And I say that in part because the China model, which maybe five years ago looked more appealing to a lot of people around the world, is now less appealing because it's there's more clear repression and because their economy is slowing down. I'll echo everything uh, Elliot said there. Of course, you know, was starting with commending the wonderful work of the National Endowment for Democracy and all the, the sister organizations too, which of course were you know created orig originally birthed and out of Reagan's wonderful 1982 Westminster speech. But you know, even though democracy has not had a good run worldwide over the last 15, 16 years, you know, we've been in this, you know, long-term secular decline and hasn't had great champions in the last few presidencies. Uh, you know, not that history repeats itself or is cyclical, but it was a somewhat similar circumstance when Reagan takes office, you know, when he was elected in 1980, there was a sense that democracy's best days are behind it, right? That the only real viable alternatives in the world at the time were either a military dictatorship or a communist revolution, or in the Middle East, you know, growing uh, Islamic radicalism. And, you know, the United States by itself, you know, cannot completely re-engineer world trends, but uh, Reagan and Schultz uh, and, you know, great lieutenants like Elliot Abrams and Paul Wolfowitz and others showed that with you know key American both rhetorical support but also programmatic support and diplomatic support, I guess here's how I would put it. Democratic activists around the world in the 1980s, whether in communist countries or right-wing authoritarians, they believed that the United States was on their side. And they believed that because the United States was on their side. And, you know, more than any particular, you know, funding program or speech or démarche or something like that, that sense that the world's you know, most powerful country, greatest democracy was on the side of freedom, I think it, it can't be quantified, but that is the demonstrable difference between then, then and now. Um, you know, in, in those days, Chile had a dictator too, General Pinochet. And there was a big popular movement against him, which we uh, were for. And, you know, here was a clear case where we knew it was coming next, Christian Democrats. And we were right. That's who won the election. They had a, they had a plebiscite. Should Pinochet 
stay in office or should he leave after 13 years? Should he do another 13? And there is a true story told uh, in a a wonderful movie about this, where one of the young people says to somebody of the older generation, uh, we're going to win, we're going to win. And the guy says, no, you're not going to win because the gringos, the Americans, will never permit it. They're behind Pinochet. And the young man says, los gringos son con nosotros. The gringos are with us. And they knew they knew exactly what you were just saying. They knew that the United States was on the side of the democratic forces. And that's where when we look at the world today, I mean, I hope that the courageous demonstrators in Iran right now, as we're recording this, you know, the demonstrators in Hong Kong over the last couple of years, in, in Belarus, in Venezuela, I hope that they know that or believe that the United States is, is on their side. I think I worry sometimes that that's a missing factor. I can't, you know, look, we're not promising any automatic happy happy outcomes with, with all of this, but that transcendent factor, I think, is a big difference between Reagan's day and our own. It's interesting to me that we have seen for months these demonstrations and protests in Iran. It happened last in 2009, and the United States did not get behind them, even, even rhetorically. And we've now seen the current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who worked for President Obama then, and we've seen President Obama both say, yeah, we didn't do it right back then, and we should have gotten behind them, and we should now make it clear that we are 100% on their side. Exit question for me. You know, one of the things that comes through most clearly in reading the book is that regardless of, of political experience and background, the sort of moral strength uh, and moral voice of the president emerges. And he's able to rely upon that. And as you say, Will, his last meeting with Gorbachev, he actually leans into faith for Gorbachev trying to help him with his situation, with his religious freedom problem. You also tell the, the story early in the book of uh, Elliot and uh, Gene Kirkpatrick going over to the Carter White House, effectively for a meeting about you know, anti-Soviet engagement um, posture, and at at some level, uh, willingness to switch teams. And I'm wondering, as we have a number of younger listeners who uh, do also share a moral voice, a moral commitment, how you feel about the ballast involved in in switching sides and switching teams and being open to sort of following uh, the through lines of of moral conviction when it comes to public life. This was um, 1980, Carter was president, And there were a bunch of what I'd call conservative Democrats, Gene Kirkpatrick being one of the most famous ones, Admiral Zumwalt being another one, who went to see President Carter because we didn't like his policy toward the Soviet Union, which we thought was refusing, straight out refusing to make those moral distinctions. And we were invited to come meet with the president, about seven or eight of us, in the cabinet room. We got a real good pitch from Vice President Mondale, you know, come home, you're Democrat, stay with the party. And then President Carter came in and spoke for, I don't know, 10 minutes and turned us all into Republicans. I don't think there was one person who was at that meeting who actually voted for him for president because he made it clear that what we were fearing was actually his policy, that he did not want to draw these bright lines on moral grounds between the United States and the Soviet Union. Some of us, for example, Max Kempelman stayed, I think, in the Democratic Party, however he voted. But several of us, Gene Kirkpatrick and 
I and and Max actually then ended up in the Reagan administration because one of the things about Reagan was as a former Democrat, he didn't think that it was a crime to have been or to even be a Democrat, which which was a great thing because it meant he could bring in um, a lot more people as as possible sources of of, um, staff members and appointees for his administration. Yeah, I was really struck by that too, Elliot, and that's why I, I you know, relish telling that that particular uh, story in in the in the book itself of that, you know, rather infamous meeting. So, so Josh, on this question about partisan identification and and political loyalties, I will say one other thing I was struck by over the course of the you know, research and writing the book is in those key moments, Reagan even though he was you know, vilified and attacked in partisan warfare at the time, at those key moments, he really was able to unite the country to appeal to people of, of both parties, of all parties, uh, and really was more of a unifying figure. And I just want to you know, close with a little vignette from the book, which I think wonderfully illustrates it. So the setting is it's the summer of 1984. The Democrats have just uh, selected Walter Mondale as their candidate to challenge Reagan in, in his reelection campaign. So it's clear it's going to be a Reagan and Mondale contest in 1984. And this, of course, is also the um, 40th anniversary of the D-Day Normandy invasion. And so, you know, with help from his very gifted wordsmith uh, speechwriter, Peggy Noonan, Reagan travels over to Normandy to Point du Hoc, you know, the famous cliffs where the Rangers scaled them. And he gives one of his, one of his greatest speeches. And this is a president gave many great speeches. So, and he's got those wonderful lines in the speech. I'll, I'll read them here. These are the boys of Point du Hoc. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. These are the heroes who helped end a war. So he gave that speech late afternoon France time in his mid-morning in the United States and it was broadcast live on all the major networks. And in Boston, a group of office co-workers gathered around their office television to watch. And one of them recalled of the moment when Reagan paid his tribute to the Ranger veterans. These are the boys at Point du Hoc. This, this office worker said, I started crying. And when I looked around the room, I realized I wasn't the only one. All of my colleagues were sobbing as well. The office was the Walter Mondale campaign headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> and this, the anecdote comes from Bill Galston, who's, I know, a friend, friend of many of us here, right? And, and he has this wonderful reflection. He says, at that moment, I realized this isn't a fair fight. We can't beat this guy, right? But it's, I don't say that in, in a partisan way, but rather this shows Reagan's capacity to reach all Americans, to appeal to our best traditions, to you know, inspire the country, even the staff of the guy that he's, that he's, that he's running against. Well, maybe that young man or woman is listening. Thank you both uh, very much for this. It's awesome. Really appreciate it. Great pleasure. Very much enjoyed it. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with scholars, clerics, and elder statesmen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>